Sunday when uh, we get to hear testimonies of God's grace and then we gather together and sing of God's grace and his mercy. Uh, the Lord is doing wonderful things here and through the people at Oak Park and it is uh, good to have Chris and Mariah uh, who will be uh, who have been baptized into our body, body and will be uh, uh, we'll affirm them into membership here in December at our family business meeting, but uh, I encourage you, church family, get to know them and, uh, and, and invite them into this body, and uh, we look forward to seeing how they will serve with the gifts that the Lord has given them through His Holy Spirit. Well, if you would, let's take our Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans is in the New Testament, and if you move past the Gospels and Acts, you'll, you'll run into Romans, and we are in... Romans chapter 4, and I invite you to uh, follow along with me as I read. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, the Scripture will be put up on the screen as I read. Hear the Word of the Lord, inspired through the Apostle Paul. He writes, For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith, but when he considered his own body was good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. The words that was counted for him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised, who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was raised or delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, as we now come to your word, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the faith of Abraham. And more importantly, that we would re be reminded of the promises which he believed. And that as we now search the scriptures, Lord, I pray that our faith would not be weakened. But Lord, rather it would be strengthened, that it would grow, and that we would not waver. And that we would become fully convinced that you are able to do what you have promised. We pray these things with eager expectation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the reasons that I think Christians struggle to grow in their faith is because we rarely consider the full implications of the gospel. Oftentimes, Christians only consider one component of the gospel or one component of the good news. And that component is that Christians often focus almost exclusively that the good news is how I escape from the judgment of God. Or how can my sins be forgiven? How can I ensure that I do not incur wrath or what the Bible speaks of, of hell? How can I make sure that I do not experience that? And so we, we rightfully, and I think that, that is a, a foundational component of the gospel, we believe those truths. But oftentimes, that's where we stop. That the gospel's just concerned of, of getting me out of judgment. As a result, Christianity becomes a thing that happened to me in the past. And it doesn't have really any ongoing significance for my life because 
that was just a thing I did so I don't experience something in the future. But right now, I don't really know what to do with my Christianity. And so when we sit in church and we hear the scriptures taught or we we come to discipleship classes or in our community groups and we're, we're thinking about the commands of scripture, when we only view the gospel as this means of getting me out of something, when we hear the exhortations of scripture, the, the commands of scripture, the direction that scripture comes or gives us, we often view them as obligations. And, and we make them actually seem more like burdens in our life rather than joyful expressions of our freedom in Christ. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe when you hear the scripture talk of the things uh, that, as, that we are to do as, as believers or practice what we call sometimes the spiritual disciplines. Oh, these are just burdens. These are obligations. You know, I ought to do them because God has saved me, but but we really don't know where they fit in the equation because that was something that's already done. So is this just kind of icing on the cake, extra credit on my exam? And we begin to maybe think, as, as I often did when I was a, 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 a young uh, person growing up in the church, oh, those are the things that like people who are really committed do. Those are the things that people who want to get double stars and credits with God, they, they do those things. But, you know, if the gospel is just about being forgiven of my sins, okay, I've done that what's next? And we maybe struggle to see where our faith fits there. And so in some way, we we might say these things, yeah, I know I should read my Bible. Yeah, I should go to church. Yeah, I should be more involved and serve. But you know what? I'm fine with just being forgiven. And so there becomes an apathy that begins to set in. I show up on Sunday, and I check in, and I check out. You know what, Lord, you forgave me. That's all it's about, right? And that's not what it's all about. That's just a component of the gospel. And so this apathy comes in because oftentimes we've just considered what we've been saved from, but have little understanding to what we've been saved for. And when we don't understand that positive aspect of the gospel, well, we'll just show up on Sunday morning, punch our ticket, and, and we'll just say, you know, I'll take from the buffet of what the, sh- the church offers me, and I, I like that or I don't like this, because we don't really see that this is a part of a journey, and that I'm a part of a family, and that there is somewhere we're going together by the blood of Jesus Christ that has freed us and enabled us to do so. See, brothers and sisters, God has delivered us from the bondage of sin. We've we've heard that through the songs we've sung. We've heard that beautifully through the testimonies that were given. And that's that's not the end of the journey. That's just the beginning. That's just putting on, as I say, baptism is putting on the team jersey. Now we get into the game and we play. You don't join the team to say, all right, I did that. I'll hang my jersey up on the wall. And every now and then I'll show up at, at some meetings that occur. No, you, you, you believe these things, and the gospel says that you are bound in shackles. You are unable to seek God and, and live for him and to please him. But through the gospel, Christ has cleansed you of your sin. And he has unlatched those handcuffs that are upon you, not so you sit there. Not that you, you just punch a ticket. Know that you now are on the journey toward the promised land. And you don't do it solo. You don't do it on your own. This, it no longer becomes about you. It becomes all about the glory of God. And we're going to see that in this passage this morning. This is why Paul turns his attention to the promise in verse 13. He says, For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, that they would be heir of the world. Heir of the world. We read in the Old Testament that God made a promise to Abraham. Pastor Mike read from from Genesis 15. I want to recall uh, the promise earlier in chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. But uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, listen to the promise that was given. And and we can kind of understand what Paul's calling us to consider. 
Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the Abrahamic covenant. That's what we're referring to here in the scripture. This is the promise to Abraham. And and we're going to see that this promise is reiterated and talked about throughout the book of Romans. But this promise has three main components. If you're wanting to think about what is the promise, well, the promise has three components. Number one, to Abraham, it was God promised him a land. Promised him a land. Number two, he promised him descendants or offspring or children. And number three, worldwide blessing. Okay? Land, people, worldwide blessing. That's the the, the promise to Abraham. And if we were to continue through the the narrative of Scripture, particularly in the book of Genesis, uh, this promise is passed down to Abraham's children, down to Isaac in Genesis 26, and then to Jacob in Genesis 28, and then to the nation of Israel. We we see that these promises are are passed down and, and reiterated time and time again. And see... These promises come to Israel and are reminded in in Exodus chapter 6 when they're in bondage to slavery. And there's always a a purpose behind why God is going to deliver them out of the bondage that they're in. It was not, oh, I'll deliver them and then they can just kind of go and do whatever they want. No, it is, let my people go that they may serve me. It was the beginning not the end. Their liberation from slavery was just the beginning of the journey. This promise begins to take a little bit more shape and definition when it's reiterated to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God reiterates these promises and, and, and talks about the land, the people, and worldwide blessing. And God promises David, he says, that I'm going to give you a descendant. I'm going to give you an offspring, a son who's going to sit on your throne and who's going to mediate these promises, who's going to mediate these blessings and going to bring peace to my people. In the days of Isaiah the prophet, the nation of Israel was actually taken out of the land. Crisis began to set in. All right, you've given us land, you've given us people. Worldwide blessing hasn't really been happening because now Assyria has come in. Babylon, these these other godless nations, and and now they're ruling, and it doesn't feel like blessing. In fact, we're being killed. We're getting dragged out of our homes. We're being drug into their land. So Israel's taken out of her land, is subjugated, and the nations who mock God are now ruling. However, God reminds them of his promise to raise up his servant David. David's already dead. But this is the promise that he's going to raise up a son of David who's going to sit on the throne and who's going to redeem them. And and Isaiah writes in Isaiah 49, you you may want to turn there because we're going to land here for just a moment. Isaiah 49, this is the Old Testament. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, Israel is under oppression. Doesn't look like God's promises are coming to fulfillment. And he's turning their attention to this one to come. And he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel and to bring back the preserved, or tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light. For the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What is this salvation going to to look like? Well, if you jump down to verse 8, we see, And thus says the Lord, in the time of favor I have answered you. 
In a day of salvation, I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land and apportion the desolate heritages. There you see it right there, land, people, blessing. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. And they shall feed along the ways, and all their bare heights shall be their pasture. And they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And bring them uh, or by springs of water, he will guide them. And I'll make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Bring forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion <clears throat> on his afflicted. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah is now looking to the day when these promises made to Abraham, and we are now hundreds of years later, thousand years later. They still don't see them, but yet God is promising them freedom. Saying to the captives, to the prisoners, come out, those in darkness, appear. Why? So that I might guide you. Oh, it's the beginning of something. It's not the end. It's not the end uh, of, of everything. It is the, the start of everything. And no longer on this journey are you going to hunger and thirst? No longer are you going to feel the curse through the elements of the world where the wind and the sun strike you. And all creation are going to abound in joy and singing when I take you where I'm going. How's this going to occur? Well, later the prophet Isaiah describes God's promise of land, people, and blessing as a new heavens and a new earth. This is in Isaiah 65, verse 17. A new heavens and a new earth. In other words, Isaiah promises that there's going to be a resurrection of everything. A resurrection. All things are going to be made new. And if we were to flip all the way to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, what, what is the going to occur when Jesus comes and he has defeated all his enemies? John says, Behold, and I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And when Jesus comes, when he returns, there's going to be a land, a people, and worldwide blessing. Okay? And so when we're in Romans, and you can turn there now, that was just introductory material. This is what he means when he says the promise to Abraham and his offspring that they would be heirs of the world. This promise is a promise to God's people, a place to live, free from the curse of sin and death, filled with gladness, enjoying the blessing of knowing God. And this is far more than merely escaping judgment. It's being freed to run to our Heavenly Father and partake in all that is His. You get that? That's, where, that's really where I want us to see. There's a promise that our Heavenly Father has laid out for us, and He's freed us now to pursue Him and, and, and obtain that promise. He's freed us. And so the question for us this morning is, who are the heirs of the promise? That's really been the kind of the question lingering throughout the book of Romans. Who are the heirs of the promise? Are they those who obey the works of the law? Or are they who have faith? This morning we're going to see and reiterate what we've been seeing through the book of Romans. That the promised inheritance for you, the reason that God saved you, was not to leave you where you are, was to take you to a land, to take you to the place of blessing, and it only comes through Jesus Christ. And if you are a child, or if you have put your faith in Christ, you become a child of Abraham and an heir of the promise. So when we understand what we've been saved for, we'll walk toward it in faith. Because we know the promise that our Father has given us is ours. So keeping this promise in view, Paul presents us with 
really how this promise is obtained. And he lays out for us three things that kind of revolve around faith, and we're going to see the necessity of faith, the quality of faith, and the object of faith, okay? Come back to Romans 4, verses 13 through 16. And here in these verses, Paul makes it explicitly clear that the promise made to Abraham comes through the righteousness of faith, he says, right? Verse 13, or 14, for if it is the inheritance of the law who will be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Before that, he says that it comes through the righteousness of faith. What we have seen really through chapter 1 through chapter 3 is that righteousness, the righteousness of faith means the righteousness that comes about by faith. The righteousness is accredited to you and to me through trusting in Jesus Christ, that he does not count your sins against you. That's what he means by righteousness. He just kind of summarized it, righteousness of faith. But he then moves on to the next component of the gospel and says, if righteousness is by faith, then obtaining the promise must be by faith. See, faith is not merely an option. It's a necessity. It's not, oh, I'll choose a, a road of, of works righteousness and then I'll leave aside faith. No, it is, it's, it's all or nothing and, and faith is necessary. He says, if it's not based on faith, the promise would be nullified. If you pursue the promises of God, and this is good word for us who are already Christians, if you think that you started by faith and somehow you're going to be perfected in your works, no, 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 it's all of faith. It's all of faith. Paul gives two reasons why that is the case in this text. Why the promises of God can only be received by faith and not by works. And the first reason is in verses 14 and 15, because no one is able to keep the law. No one's able to keep the law. Follow Paul's argument with me. Verse 14, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul says this, Depending on works righteousness to obtain the promises of God is antithetical to the faith. It's antithetical to faith. It's not trusting in him, it's trusting in yourself. And those things are at odds, okay? And if the promise is by works, the point is no one will receive the promise. It's null, it's void. And the idea here is think of a covenant, a contract, a, a deal. If this promise made to Abraham was based on works, well then it's done. And if you know Abraham's story... He's, Genesis 12, between Genesis 12 and chapter 15, Abraham tries to do it by works, and it doesn't come about. In Genesis 15, is it going to be this heir? Later he says, well, we'll try it through me sleeping with my wife's servant, and we'll have a baby, and, and I'll make it happen. Nope. No, and God reiterates, no, the promise will be through me, not through your means of doing it. And I've said that you're going to have a child of your own with Sarah. And we're going to see how that had to be faith. So faith is antithetical to works. Why? This is verse 15. Because the law brings wrath. That's what he says. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. What's he talking about here? Works righteousness. If it's about that, actually just exposes you for your failures. That's what it does. When the righteous, holy, pure law of God comes and you engage it, what does it do? It exposes you. And so if there's no law, there's no transgression, he isn't saying that there's no sin if you don't know the law. What he's talking about is where the law doesn't come you don't see your sin. 
And transgression, that term is a very technical term that means to a willful rebellion against known commands. It's a little bit more specific than just sin. We all sin, but transgression comes when we hear God's command and we say, no, that's transgression, okay? And where the law comes, well, there's no transgression because it hasn't exposed you and given you opportunity to basically say no. But the law has come. That's his point. And all of us have gone astray. All of us have. So the first reason we need faith is because no one's able to keep the law. The second reason is because then, and this is kind of the other side of the coin, because the promise would not be according to grace. And if it's not according to grace, verse 16, then it's not secure. It's not guaranteed. Okay, you see that in verse 16? This is why it, what is it? The promise. Why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. That is good news, brothers and sisters, is it not? The promise doesn't rest on you. The promise doesn't rest on me. It rests on on his grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring Paul is emphasizing that if the promise is not by grace through faith then the promise can't be sure it cannot be guaranteed it cannot be secured because it would depend on you and me to uphold it to hold our end of the deal up and that would be impossible because as we've learned, that we start off dead in our trespasses and sins, right? We, we start off, when, by the time we hear the, the, the covenant, we've already sinned. And even if we hadn't, when we hear these things, we come, we, 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 our hearts wander, don't they? They go to other things. Genesis 15, Abraham asks God this. He says, how am I to know that I'm to possess this promise? That's what the question is that, that, that brings about Genesis 15, what, what Pastor Mike read at the pastoral prayer. And I want us to think back. I'm not going to go through that because I'm preaching Romans, not Genesis. But think back. What did God do? What was his solution? He says, all right, Abraham, I want you to get three-year-old cow, three-year-old goat, three-year-old ram, and some birds and turtle doves. I want you to take the animals, not the birds, and I want you to rip them in two. Pretty vivid. And I want you to create, like I'm imagining an aisle of their carcasses going down. And the reason he did that is because the ancient Near East people would cut a covenant. And there's, there's kind of a, a pun there, cut a covenant. And so cuts these animals in two. And two parties would enter a, a, an agreement with one another. And they would say, we've cut this covenant, and if one of us breaks the deal, may it be to us what has happened to these animals. <laughs> okay? Now, what do you expect? Well, if the promise was based on works, Abraham walks through that path. And then the Lord walks through the path. But that's not what happens. It's not what happens. Abraham sets it up, and in a deep sleep the Lord puts upon Abraham. The dude falls asleep at the signing of the deal. Can you imagine? You're going to, to, to maybe sign papers to, to buy a house, and, and you, don't, you don't even get to sign them. You fall asleep at the deal. Well, it did, no deal, right? If you won't sign the papers. But that's how this happened. Abraham falls asleep at the table. And that's how the Lord says, that's how you'll know. Because it doesn't depend on you. You get it? You see? This is what Paul is drawing out for us. It's always been by faith. And so Oak Park, I want us to, to rest in the truth that God's promise is based on His grace. That's a gift to us. Not on our works. Because if it was based on our works, well, we would break the deal. We wouldn't be able to uphold its terms. And because it's by grace, 
It was grace to Abraham. The promise is secured to him and his offspring even while we sleep. That's a good reminder all the time. Every night we go to sleep. And there's nothing we can do, but you know who doesn't sleep? Our Lord. Our Lord doesn't sleep. He doesn't sleep on the promises. And therefore, if we want to receive the promise like Abraham, then we want to share the faith of Abraham. That's the second half of verse 16. Look, look there. That the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Well, now he's going to define, well, who are the offspring? Not only to the adherent of the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. That phrase could be a little confusing on the, on the surface. It kind of makes it sound like not only to the one who chooses the route of law, but also the one who has faith. What he's trying to say here is exactly what he said um, at the end of chapter where he talks about verse 30 since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith what he's talking about here the adherent of the law the Jew that's what he's saying not not merely the ethnic Jew the one born under law but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham that's what he's trying to say here And so in these verses, we're going to see what Abraham's faith was like because this is what true saving faith is. And I think this will be instructional for us this morning because there's a lot of confusing, what is faith? If you ask maybe the the person on the street, what is faith? They might say, they kind of maybe would articulate or define it like a superstition. You know, I I have faith that this is going to work, but it's not really a certainty. It's really empty. But we're going to see the children of Abraham share the faith of Abraham, the end of verse 16, who is the father of us all. And he begins to support this assertion in verse 17. He says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. His point being is that Abraham's going to be our father, and like father, like his children, like his sons and daughters will be like his father. And so how was Abraham? He was a man of faith. And and therefore, if we're going to be counted as children, we must have faith like Abraham. That's his point. And so he cites Genesis 17, 5, which is another component where this covenant is reiterated, to support that if we're going to be heirs of the promises of Abraham, we must share the faith of Abraham. So what did Abraham believe? Because this is the essence of true saving faith. Well, in verse 17, we see that Abraham trusted God's power. See that in the latter half of verse 17. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not yet exist. Abraham's faith consisted in trusting the power of God. He believed in the power of God. He believed specifically that God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not yet exist. Abraham knew that he was the creator of all things, that God was the creator of all things. And as the creator, he created all things out of what? Nothing. That's God's work. And just as God shone forth light into creation, so Paul says elsewhere to the Corinthians, he says, so God has shown the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hearts. There was darkness, and God said, let there be light. You didn't like somehow conjure up and get a flicker, get a little Zippo lighter out and start, all right, I'm going to create light. You know, that doesn't, that's not how it works. He creates the light. And God and Abraham believed that. So just as he created all things out of nothing, so God can give life to the dead and raise up a multitude of offspring that do not yet exist, right? So what he says to Abraham, hey, I want you to look up at the stars. See all of them? Can you number them? No, I, got, I keep getting tra- lost track. Well, that's not the point, Abraham. The point is, is that there's so many of them, and you have zero right now. And I'm going to give them to you. How's that going to happen? He believes in the power of God. He believes God is able. In other words, Abraham believed that God can do all things. And nothing is impossible for God. Uh, for God. Abraham had a very high view of God. Brothers and sisters, we 
We, we ought to have a high view of God. When thinking about Abraham's faith, I think about what's written of him in, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. I encourage you maybe this afternoon, take time just to read chapter 11. It's a little lengthy, but it just reiterates that it's always been by faith and goes through all, pretty much a big broad storyline of the Old Testament and how it always was by faith. Always. But he, on the portion of Abraham, verses 17 and 19, listen to this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So this is after the promise of you would have a child. Well, now this has happened. Well, faith doesn't stop. It continues. I'm going to stop commenting and just read. When he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his son his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. All right, let's just think about that for a moment. You struggle in your faith? I do. Lord says, this is how it's going to be. This is, I have plans for you. Sometimes you struggle, this doesn't look like the great plans I thought this was going to be. Abraham, I promise you that through your child, Isaac, the promises are going to come. Hey, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Huh? What? Where did he rest? Okay, he considered. I guess God will raise him from the dead. I guess he'll raise him from the dead. And now we're, we're beyond Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17. We're into the 20s. And Abraham's still trusting. He's still trusting in the power of God. Because God, Abraham believed in the power of God, he also trusted in God's promises. That's verses 18 through 21. Look in verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants as the stars of the sky, and because he knew that he was able to do all things, he believed the promise. But there were two main obstacles for Abraham. We're kind of moving back before Isaac. Two main obstacles for Abraham. Number one, Abraham was old. He's 75 in Genesis chapter 12. And guess who else is old? His wife. That's problem number one. Old people don't have babies. The other problem is, is that Sarah's never been able to have a baby. She's been barren. Do you see kind of a common theme here, why it's by faith? Because this is impossible. You can't do it. So how does he overcome them? Verse 19. He did not weaken in faith. I want you to pick up on that theme. He did not weaken in faith when he considered. Now this is thoughts. You saw that in Hebrew. He considered he was able to raise him from the dead, his own son. Now, here's an obstacle. What's the obstacle? He begins to consider. He considered his own body, which is good as dead. Now, this is a couple of chapters later, since he was about 100 years old. So we've gone 25 years, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. Okay, there's the two problems. We're old, bareness of Sarah's womb. When God first gave the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham 75, that's already unbelievable. You're going to have a kid. Eleven years later, we get to Genesis 15, which we've read numerous times. So now he's 86. You can begin to understand why he says, how will I know that I'm actually going to receive this? You, you might empathize with him a little bit. Then 13 years later, after that whole covenant deal at the table, you might be thinking, Abraham's, I should have woken up. I, missed, I must have missed the dotted line. I didn't sign. Thirteen years later, the Lord comes to him and says, hey, this time next year, your wife's going to be pregnant. 
You know what Abraham said? I never doubted you ever. ever. Nope. That's not what happened. Actually, what happened is that he laughed. I imagine it was, it says it laughed to himself. I imagine it was like this. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I've heard this one before. I'll hear from you in a little over a decade, Lord. That's how. So this faith, he did not weaken in his faith, but yet when we read the narrative, it seems like he, he did. So how does this work? His faith, Paul says in 4.20, actually grew strong. He did not weaken, but he grew strong in faith. How? He grew strong in his faith, verse 20, as he gave glory to God. As he gave glory to God. Abraham saw the futility of being able to bring about the promise of himself. And I think what Paul's getting after is if you look at the, at the video of Abraham's life, yeah, there were, there were points of wavering and doubting and struggle, but that's what faith looks like. What did he always come back to? He always came back to the Lord. Even think of like when righteous Lot is caught in Sodom, where does, the, where does Abraham go? He goes to the Lord and he wrestles in prayer. Okay, if there's 50 people who are, are righteous Will you spare, spare them? Oh, okay, Lord, forgive me. I'm going to ask again, what if there's 40? And he works his way all the way down to about 10. And the point is of the story, there's none righteous. <laughs> but God's gracious. And Abraham was really just concerned about Lot and his family. He struggles, but he's struggling and he's, He's turning to the Lord. It says, Paul says, he summarizes it, he gave glory to God. And that is how he grew strong in his faith. That's the means. How do, how do people grow strong in faith? You might say, I've got weak faith. I struggle. So did Abraham. But his faith did not weaken. It did not go backwards. It went forward. How? Because he kept his eyes fixed on the glory of God. He turned to him. He did not look to himself, but kept his eyes fixed on God. He began to see his circumstances. Yes, I cannot do this. Do you ever feel like that? you ever feel overwhelmed by your guilt and your sin? Or just struggles? Nothing ever seems to work out. you ever feel that way? I keep working. I just can't get it to fit. I'm lonely. I don't have any friends. What does it look like to have the faith of Abraham? I don't turn inwardly. I turn externally and I turn upward to the Lord. I seek his face. I turn to him. I rest in him. And that is the means by which when we give glory and honor and thanks due to his name, we become a worshiping people. We actually grow. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to gather with his people. You see it throughout the epistles. And I'm not just talking Paul. This is in Peter. This is in Hebrews. This is in James. Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering together, which is the habit of some. Why? He talks about them having the full assurance of faith. You can't grow on your own. You can't. Which is where it rubs against us because we so think we can. I can do it. Look at my credentials. Look at my history. And the Lord, really the whole story of Abraham, which is the story of yours and my life, is we can't do it. We can't, we can't produce our own righteousness. We can't, we can't carry out the desires of our own heart sometimes. And how do we grow in faith? It's when we throw ourselves upon the Lord who's gracious, the Lord who gives. This is what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. I pray this for you. I want you to know I pray this specific prayer for you, for myself, all the time. Paul says this in, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. He says, I do not cease to give thanks to God for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom 
and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Why? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is my prayer for us. This is my prayer for my own life. That we would grow as we fix our eyes on the glorious inheritance that he has for us. And how do we do that? We grow in the wisdom and the knowledge of the revelation of his son. So now, the Christian life isn't about, oh, I've got to go read my Bible today. No, it's because as I grow in the knowledge of the revelation of his son, I begin to understand the great promises of glory that our Father has given and when I go to his word, it keeps my eyes fixed from myself, and I begin to look upward, and I begin to see, oh, Lord, just like we're doing now, oh, I never saw this about Abraham. I never realized and put it all together. There was nothing he contributed to these things, and that's true for me as well. You're so gracious to me. But the problem we get in is we, we begin to so look in on ourselves and we get tunnel vision and we get, begin to seek lies that we begin to believe and we begin to believe about other people and then we just think, this Christianity deal doesn't work out. This isn't working for me here. Stop looking to yourself because it's never depended on you. It's always been His grace. So faith is actually active here. Don't you see it? As James put it, faith works. Faith works. It's not just a past thing in my life. Oh, I did that, and now I move on. No, it is the mustard seed of faith that Jesus talks about, that, that childlike faith. I believe. And he says, follow me. Follow me. And out of belief, I follow. And there's sometimes we're going down a dark alley. A, a, uh, that, that path has thorns and thistles, and it looks scary. Uh, Jesus, you in there? Because I don't think I'm making it through there. But I trust you. That's, that's what we see in Abraham. And that's what Paul means when he says he did not waver. He did not ever say, all right, Lord, I give up on you. I'm done. No, he struggled. And through the struggle, he grew as he continually fixed his eyes on Jesus. Now, the object of our faith. Look in verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's the beginning of the journey. But through the journey, Abraham's faith was shown to be genuine. That's the quality of faith that we're talking about here. A faith that trusts and grows. So that means it's not perfect faith, it's growing faith. But verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. But for who? Who? Us, right? Us. For you. For me. These things were written so that we would see what true saving faith looks like. You know, I'd be saying, well, well, Abraham didn't trust in Jesus. Abraham didn't, we don't see this, repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins. We don't, we don't see that. This is what we see in the Old Testament. As God's revelation is revealed, as his promise, his working out of his plans of redemption are revealed, and he reveals those to us, we believe in what he has told us. And at this point, the promise is, you're going to have a land. You're going to have people. There's interesting in Galatians, Paul picks up, there's a little bit more here. That offspring, that term can be singular or plural, right? The means by which a multitude of offspring are going to come is through one offspring. And we're going to find that that's Jesus Christ. And through that offspring, blessing is going to come to the world. But as the storyline unfolds, we get more and more data. And here we are in the New Testament, we find out, oh, this is... Faith in Jesus Christ is, is how the promises come about. And if we share the faith of Abraham, we too will be counted as righteous and receive that promised inheritance. And so, what did Abraham believe? The power of God? 
and his ability to, over, to keep the promise. Well, what do we believe? Verse 23 or 24. But for ours also it will be counted who believe in him who raised in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Well, Abraham believed that God could raise the dead. What do we believe? We believe that God raises the dead as well. Romans 10, 9. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, or confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We believe in the resurrection too. We have the same faith if we believe that. What was our obstacle? It's the same obstacle for, for Abraham. But Christ overcomes our great obstacle of how we cannot keep our end of the deal, which is our sin, right? Verse 25, who was delivered up for our what? Trespasses and raised for our justification. Because God has accomplished all this through his son, we trust that he is able. That's really what we're doing, right? We're waiting for the promises. And this is where I think we get it, we miss it. There's a journey, there's a struggle, and that is what faith is. We're, we're trusting in the hope of the promise of God to be revealed. That's why we evangelize. We don't promise people your best life now. We say, come with us who are all struggling and trust the Lord who has a promise for us. How can I receive that promise? Confess him as Lord and believe in your heart that he raised, you from the, raised him from the dead. And guess what? The promise is that just as he raised himself from the dead, he'll raise us from the dead. And that promise also speaks of a land, a new heavens and a new earth. And he's going to raise this earth up from the curses of the dead. Brothers and sisters, we're about to partake in the Lord's Supper. We do this not because this is how we do works righteousness. No. We do it in remembrance of what Christ has done. We do it in the one who secured the promises for us by grace. So I'm going to ask Brother Gary to come up here. And those are going to collect our, uh, our distribute the elements. You can come up here. Gary's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. And where I want us to fix our eyes is not on ourselves, but continue to trust in faith that he will keep his promises.